Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where we are today. Exodus 20. We're looking at the second commandment. Exodus 20. Follow along while I read verses 4 through 6. Here's what it says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, we thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit who inspired it so long ago and who now illuminates our hearts. We pray that you would do that. We pray that we would be sensitive to what your word says to us. We pray that our hearts would be malleable in your hand and changed by you so that we more perfectly reflect the perfect image of your son, Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. We are here in the Ten Commandments again this morning, looking at the second of the Ten Commandments. And this is uh, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And, um, of course, the reason that the commandment is here is because that is our human tendency. Whether we make those images uh, out of stone with our hands or whether we make them in the imaginations of our hearts, it is our tendency to make images, to make idols and worship them. The reality is that at heart, we are all idolaters, and our only hope is forgiveness at the hands of the one who is the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. That's the idea that I want to lay before you this morning as we look at this second commandment. We are all idolaters at heart, believe it or not, and our only hope is forgiveness at the hands of the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. Our intention has been throughout this um, short series in the Ten Commandments to see Jesus in these Ten Commandments. We want to learn to see Jesus in the Ten Commandments as well as learning how to understand what Jesus teaches us in terms of how to understand and apply the Ten Commandments for our lives today. And so as we talk about the Second Commandment this morning, we're going to talk about its content we're going to talk about its background and then its fulfillment and then its application. Four simple points to kind of keep track of where we are in the sermon. If you like to take notes, you can do that. They're printed on the back of your handout. We're going to talk about its content, background, fulfillment, and application. But the main idea is what we've just stated. We are all idolaters at heart. And our only hope is forgiveness at the hands of the one who is the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. So let's begin by talking about the commandment itself. Make sure we understand what, what this commandment means. Let's talk about the content of the second commandment. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The commandment itself, of course, is a commandment not to make any idols. But what does that commandment mean? What does it not mean? We know that what it doesn't mean is that human beings are, are not supposed to make any kind of imitation of anything in nature at all. That's not the point of the commandment. We know that's not the point of the commandment because as we go forward through the Bible, we see direct commands of God to do precisely this. 
In fact, when God gives the instructions for the crafting of the Ark of the Covenant, one of the things that he tells the Israelites to do is to make uh, representations of two cherubim for the, for, the, uh, for the covering of the Ark. Well, that's, that's an image of something in heaven above, isn't it? And then as you go forward from there, you see other examples of the same type of thing. When, when they're given instructions for how to make the, the robes for Aaron and for the priests, they have to, you have to embroider images of pomegranates and things like that. And, um, and, and later when the temple is built by Solomon, they do the same thing in the structure of the temple. And, and there are bulls that are crafted as part of the, the ceremonial uh, instruments of the temple service there. And, and all of that is either explicitly commanded or at least sanctioned by God. And so it's clear that this commandment is not intended to say to humans, you should never ever produce any kind of artwork, any kind of representation of anything in nature. That's not the point, right? Although historically some have interpreted it that way. But I don't think that's the point. The point has to do with what he says in the beginning of verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's what God is saying. You, sh you shall not make an image of something for the purpose of worship. You must not make things that, that you want to worship. Humans are not to make representations of anything for the sake of worshiping them, even, even if they insist that that's not what they're doing. Even, even if they come up with other arguments for what they're actually doing. The point is you must not worship images that you make. Now, we in the, in the cultivated West, we, we tend to turn our nose up at this a little bit. We say, well, of course we wouldn't do that. Of course, I'm not going to carve a statue and set it up on a pedestal and worship it. That's ridiculous. But we do the same thing in our own minds often, don't we? We, we? we come up with things in our minds that we want to worship. Maybe we don't make them out of stone or gold or silver, but we come up with things that we value more than we value God. And at its heart, that's what idolatry is. And so this commandment speaks to us just as, it, as much as it spoke to the ancient Israelites. They just did it more obviously than we do. And they did it too, didn't they? Only a few chapters after this, we're going to come up across the golden calf incident where the, the Israelites uh, make an, an, a statue. They make a carved image, a golden bull, which they worship. This is the natural tendency of every human heart. We are all idolaters at heart. And our only hope is forgiveness at the hands of God. Now, we read that, and we, and we go through that that far, and we say, okay, well, that, that's simple enough. That makes sense as far as it goes. We shouldn't worship anything other than God. Okay, I got it, right? What, really, what we really struggle with as we look at these verses is what comes next, right? The reason that God gives for not creating graven images. What does he say? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And, and, and we can't get any further than that, right? That's where we get hung up, more likely than not. And so I want to take a minute this morning and explain what does God mean and what does he not mean when he says that he is a jealous God? What does he mean and what does he not mean when he says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation? So let's, let's dive into this a little bit. God says that he is a jealous God. Now, for you and me, we hear the word jealousy, and it almost, almost universally has a connotation of, of human bitterness. There's a negative nuance to it for us, right? There's human bitterness and envy. Um, it's freighted with bitterness about the advantages enjoyed by others that we wish were our own. That's what comes into our mind when we think of jealousy. That's what it means to be jealous. We see somebody else has something that we want, 
and we feel bitter and envious of it, right? But you have to understand jealousy properly understood is, is not that. Jealousy properly understood is simply uh, seeing that someone else has something that should be yours, but that somebody else has, right? And so there's a proper jealousy and there's an improper jealousy. There's an improper and incorrect jealousy, which is desiring something that is not ours by right, but which we want nonetheless. And there is a proper kind of jealousy, which is desiring something that is ours by right, but which someone else has unjustly taken from us. Jealousy can refer to either one of those two things. And of course, when God uses it to describe himself, he's describing himself with the second thing. He's saying there is something that by right is his, but which he sees being taken from him and bestowed on others. And that thing, namely, is worship. Worship is his, glory is his, but he sees it taken from him and bestowed on images. And he says, that's incorrect. And so he says, I am a jealous God. A parallel, maybe to help us understand this, is, is the state of a husband whose wife's affections are being taken from him and bestowed on an interloper. That husband is rightly jealous. Now, what he does with that jealousy might be wrong, but the jealousy itself is righteous. And that's what God is expressing here. God declares himself to be jealous. It doesn't mean that he is a petty, vindictive, prone to bitterness deity who might fly off the handle at any moment. Rather, he is saying that worship is his by right, and he won't permit it to be taken away and given to another, a carved image. And he goes on to say, then, that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. We read that and we go, well, that's unjust. And we imagine a God who's going to knock on our door one day and say, hey, I'm here to collect vengeance because of something that your grandfather did. That's not fair, right? That's not just. Well, so what, what, what is the point of this passage? Why, why is God saying this about himself? Why would God be so unjust as to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation? Well, there's two ways to respond to that objection. The first is, actually, it's something that we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. God is God, and we are not. There's a sense in which any discussion of fairness when it comes from us toward God is absurd. Whatever God does is by definition fair and just because he is God. Whenever we start questioning God's justice or fairness, we're on shaky ground. But that's entirely beside the point. I don't think that's the point of this verse anyway. God is not saying that he will come and knock on your door and demand an accounting from you for something that your grandfather did, nor is he saying that he will someday go and knock on your grandkids' door and demand an accounting from them because of your sins. In fact, that idea is is explicitly repudiated in several places in Scripture. God insists that he does not hold children accountable for the sins of their parents or their grandparents. He does not do that. That is not the right way to read this verse. If you're curious about where those verses are that explicitly repudiate that idea, you can come and talk to me after the service. I'll show you those verses. But it's important for you to understand that's not what God is saying here. So what is he saying? I think, and, and most commentators agree, that what what God is saying when he says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation is that he will not excuse sin simply because one generation learns it at the hands of their parents. Do you see? 
that is something that we as humans tend to do. As humans, we tend to say, when we look at someone, we try to be charitable and we say, well, so-and-so uh, is a really bad person. They, they, they treat other people poorly, but you know what? Their parents were pretty bad too. They had bad examples. So we're gonna give them a little bit of leeway. We're gonna treat them with, with a little bit of grace. And that might be a right response for us as humans to take those types of things into account. But what God is saying is he will not excuse sin of one generation just because they learned the sin from their parents. You see, he is a just God. And every person stands before God based on their own actions and their own merits. They will not answer for their parents' sins, but neither will their parents' sins excuse their own. You see, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, but only, notice, to the third and the fourth generation to the third and the fourth generation. Now, what you have to understand is that in scripture, that, that, that language of three and four is actually a common idiom that gets used in, a, in, in various different places. And, and the sense of it is, well, it's really not that dissimilar to the way we use the phrase three or four, you know? If I say, this sermon's gonna be done in three or four minutes, which it isn't, by the way, I need to, <laughs> need to clarify that, all right? But if I say, this sermon's gonna be over in three or four minutes, what I'm saying is, it's not a specific time, but it's a relatively short time, right? That's what that phrase three or four means. And it's the same here. And, and, and the, the scripture uses it that way in a few different places. And it's being used that way here. What God is saying is he holds every generation accountable for their sins for a short distance. Not, not a predetermined amount of time, but, but for a little bit. And that is specifically contrasted to what he says next. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but he shows steadfast love, covenant love. Some of your translations will say loving kindness or mercy. He shows steadfast love to thousands, and the implication is to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, there's a very stark contrast that is being set up here. The justice of God is limited to three or four generations, but the chesed love, the loving kindness, the covenant mercy and forgiveness of God stretches to thousands of generations. Now you tell me, what is it that God wants us to take away from these verses other than the fact that he is by nature a loving and forgiving and merciful God? He describes the justice that's poured out on generations to three or four generations, but his love and mercy go to thousands. You're supposed to come away from that going, how great is the mercy and love of God? Let no one say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and judgment and punishment of sin, and it's only the God of the New Testament who's loving and kind and forgiving. Far be it from us to say that. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. They are unchanging. This God is loving and forgiving. He is a God who shows mercy to thousands of generations. His very nature is one of love and mercy. Beloved, take a minute and revel in the forgiveness of God. This is your hope. This is your confidence that this God shows you love mercy and forgiveness because it's who he is i'm convinced i'm convinced that if we could wrap our minds around this part of the nature of god better we would treat each other better if we understood the depth of god's love and mercy and grace to us 
it would be easier for us to show mercy and love and grace to one another. So take a minute. Consider God's love and grace to you. For all of this, God says, for all these reasons, you must not make for yourselves a graven image. Now, someone might say, I know we're not supposed to make idols to worship, right? I know I'm not supposed to make a statue uh, and, and pretend it's some other god and fall down and worship that. But, but what about making a visual representation of God himself? What if I make a, try to make a visual representation of the one true God who was revealed in Scripture? Surely it couldn't be wrong to do that and then, and then, uh, and then worship God by bowing down and, and venerating that image, right? And the answer is no. This commandment forbids that also. We are not supposed to make anything that is meant to be an image of God or gods and worship them. And the reason God will not allow that takes us back to our next point, which is the background for this commandment. This commandment of not making a graven image actually has its roots in an earlier story in the books of Moses. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Now, it's been a year since we studied Genesis 1 and 2, but you might remember that when we were looking at the Garden of Eden passages in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things that we pointed out was that the Garden of Eden looks a whole lot like a phenomenon which historians call uh, idol gardens, which occurred in antiquity in the ancient Near East. These were, these were gardens that, that, the, that the ancients would, would craft with lots of flowers and, and flowery shrubs and fruit trees. And there would be mazes that wound all the way through the garden. And somewhere within the garden, maybe at the central point in those idol gardens, there would be a shrine, an altar. There would be an idol there. There would be a statue of the god or the goddess that that idol garden was dedicated to. And the devotee was supposed to meander through those paths in that garden and, and, and kind of try to be meditative and contemplative and things like that. And they would eventually get to the shrine and then they would offer their, their sacrifices. They would worship the god or the goddess in the garden. That was common in antiquity. And the, and the Garden of Eden looks a whole lot like that in some ways, with the difference being that there's no shrine right? There's no idol in the Garden of Eden. There's no image of the God, except there is, right? There is an image of God in the Garden of Eden, but it's not a statue carved out of stone or, or made out of gold or silver. It's a human being. And so it says, God made man in his image, right? And so Moses, as he tells the story, and as the Holy Spirit inspires him to relate the story to the Israelites, he's saying to them, look, guys, you know about, you know about idol gardens. You know how the Egyptians worshipped their gods in these gardens and how the Canaanites did that? Well, God had a garden too. But the image that's worshipped there, the image that exists in that idol garden, is you. It's humans. Humans are made in the image of God. So, why does God not allow us to make visual representations of himself? Because he already did it. Do you see? God already did that. He made an image of himself. And the implication of this is that our God, the God of the Bible, is so great, so powerful, so omnipotent, so entirely other, that he is not fit to be represented by a dead, lifeless statue. That doesn't do him justice. The only thing that will do this God justice is a living being. God made us in his image, in his likeness. You see, we're the living idols of God. It won't do for us to make anything else in his image. 
But, of course, that image got broken. The image was perverted, and, and that's the story of the fall. Mankind sinned, didn't they? Human beings sinned. They rebelled against God. They weren't content with God himself. The serpent came and said, if you eat the fruit that you were commanded not to eat, you will be like God. Do you remember? Do you remember the, the temptation? Eat it and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But of course, the great irony there is they were already like God. God said so. I, I made you in my likeness. Which is a lesson all to itself, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This, the serpent cannot ever offer us anything that we don't already have. It's something worth remembering in the midst of temptation. There's nothing that he can offer you. That's better than what God has already given. And so he says to, he says to Adam and Eve, uh, God knows that in the day that you eat it, you'll be like him. And, 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 they, and they reach for that. And the irony is that in, in reaching for that God-like status, which they already had as images of God, they end up falling to a less than status than they were before. They become less than they were before. They become less like God. The image of God is broken. It's tarnished in them. It's still there, but it's tarnished. It's, it's broken. Instead of being like God, instead of being the images of God, they now have become obedient to the serpent, which they were meant to rule as images of God. It's all a very convoluted story, isn't it? But ever since then, we humans have been falling into the same error, trying to grasp things that aren't ours to grasp, trying to be more like God than we were meant to be, trying to usurp God's place, either ourselves or putting other things in God's place. We are all idolaters at heart. Sometimes that idolatry shows up in making ourselves out to be God, worshiping ourselves explicitly or implicitly, or worshiping other things. We are all idolaters at heart. Our only hope for forgiveness comes at the hands of the perfect image of God in Jesus Christ. And it's here that Jesus then comes on the scene. As Jesus comes in the Gospels, he comes to repair what was disgraced and perverted in the fall. And so when we read the Gospel stories of Jesus, and as we read what the apostles say about Jesus, we're impacted by the language that's used of him. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, calls Jesus the last Adam. Which, among other things, recalls to our mind the way Jesus restores the dignity of man as the image of God that was lost through the fall. Jesus becomes what Adam was meant to be. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. What was broken in Adam is restored by Jesus. As God in the flesh, Jesus is the ultimate image of God to which all humanity points. Further, he fully restores the image of God in his people by uniting them to himself. And so we read that Jesus is the, the perfect husband to his people. And Jesus and his people, the church, are one, even as a husband and wife are one. Christ is our divine, eternal husband. And by uniting us to himself, he restores in us what was lost. He fulfills in us what was broken. And as such, he shows himself to be the fulfillment not only of the perfect image of God, but the final expression of the image of the jealously compassionate God. Just as God here in Exodus 20 says, I am a jealous God, so Jesus can, can think about and talk about himself as the jealous husband. 
When Jesus sees us going after other things other than him, he comes after us jealously, demanding for himself that which is his by right, but which we so often take away from him and bestow on others. And so here at this point in the message, I want you to consider that in yourself. I want you to look deep into yourself and see how it is that you might be guilty of this, of, of bestowing on other things or people the devotion that rightly belongs to Christ, that rightly belongs to God. We're all guilty of it at different points, aren't we? But Jesus is constantly seeking to make us his, to make us, himself our first love he is constantly seeking to remind us of the love that we were made to have for him and brothers and sisters i want you to consider that his action in doing this is for your good his action in doing this is for our good it's not that he is a bitter person who who wants his own rights simply because they're his he wants his own rights because he knows that's what is best for us we were made to worship god we were made to find delight in communion with Jesus. We will not be happy. We will not have joy. We will not find satisfaction in anything else. And so when he jealously comes after us, he is doing what is best for us. Consider it. Consider how you have been guilty of worshiping other idols, worshiping other gods, placing other things or people ahead of God in your own estimation. And consider the mercy of God in not leaving you in that state, but coming after you instead. The gospel is finally the story of a justly jealous husband winning back his straying spouse. That's what Jesus' death on the cross is. It's God saying, I love you so much that I'll do this to get you back. We are all idolaters at heart. Our only hope is the forgiveness that comes at the hand of this perfect image of God in Christ. So let's consider just a few applications of this for our lives today. What are some applications of the second commandment as we understand it through the lens of the gospel and the lens of Christ? First, we must not worship God in any way we choose, but only in his prescribed way. You see, God, by saying you may not make carved images, is saying not only, as we've already pointed out, not only may you not worship other gods, but you can't even make images of me and call them an image of me and worship them. Even if you're well-intentioned in that, even if you're doing the best job you can in that, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to worship God in any way you choose. God is the one who decides how we can worship him, you see? The implication of that for us is that, that God is not pleased with, with us just kind of doing our best in our own strength and in our own way. What God is pleased with is when we follow his word. What God is pleased with is when we come to him in his prescribed way, which is namely coming to him in Jesus Christ. So as we seek to obey the second commandment, one of the implications of this is the only way to worship him is by coming to him in the name of the one who is the perfect image of God. The only way to worship God is by repenting and trusting in Christ. Second, we must honor the true image of God in Christ and in one another. As Christ has restored the image of God in us, we can now be freed to look at one another as image bearers of God again. 
The image of God is seen in humanity. And so one of the implications of that is that we must treat each other with dignity and love. We should love other humans. We should do good. We should help others. And of course, the, 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 the greatest way we can help others is by sharing the truth of the gospel with them. But we do that in other ways too, right? And this is why. This is why Christians ought to be the most loving people that there are. Christians, followers of Jesus, ought to be characterized by love and dignity for fellow humans, regardless of, of political bent or social status or economic status or anything else, regardless of, of what country they were born in. We should be those who look at other humans and say, this is a person who is a bearer of the image of God. We honor the image of God in other humans. We honor the image of God ultimately in Christ, obeying him as our sovereign king and following him in salvation. And we honor the image of God in the church. The church, the bride of Christ, is the image of God in that it has been perfectly united to Christ. And so we, we take the church seriously. We take the church seriously, don't we? So we must honor the true image of God. And the third, we must find forgiveness for breaking the second commandment. When we give our devotion to others or seek to worship in our own way, we find forgiveness in Christ. And we find in him the power to worship God truly in Christ, his visible image. We are all idolaters at heart. Our only hope is forgiveness at the hands of the one who is the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning, brothers and sisters, is have you found forgiveness for your idolatry? Have you learned to worship God through the perfect image of God in Christ? Take a few moments in silent thought. Confess your idolatries to him. Revel in the love that he shows to a thousand generations of those who love him. And after just a minute, we'll sing together one more time.